Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all this morning. It's good to start Advent this week and uh, excited for next week. We'll begin our Advent study through the month of December, uh, preparing our hearts for Christmas and longing for Jesus. Grateful that he came once, excited for him to come again. But until then, we have the rest of Matthew chapter 13 to finish. So let me invite you to please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 13, Matthew chapter 13, as we, con- we continue our study through this gospel. We're in Matthew 13 this week. We're finishing the chapter. And the title of our sermon is Familiar Unbelief. Familiar Unbelief. Our text today teaches us how exceedingly sinful unbelief is and how we can never be too much on guard against it. Unbelief is that ancient sin. It began in the Garden of Eden when Eve listened to Satan instead of to God. Unbelief is the oldest sin in the world, and unbelief is the deadliest sin in the world. Unbelief brought death into the world, and unbelief especially fills hell. He that believes not, Jesus said, is already condemned. Unbelief blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, and and evil, unbelieving heart leads us to fall away from the living God. Hebrews 3.12 So, rightly, has J.C. Ryle observed, No sin makes less noise, but none so surely damns the soul as unbelief. No sin makes less noise. Some temptations come loud, obvious, enticing. No sin makes less noise, but none so surely damns the soul as unbelief. Unbelief is the oldest of sins. It is the worst of sins. It is the deadliest of sins. Unbelief is the most familiar sin. And Matthew 13 warns us to watch out and to guard our hearts from unbelief even after we have believed. We're looking today at verses 53 through 58, the end of Matthew chapter Chapter 13, I want to invite you now to follow along as I read God's holy and authoritative word to us. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom 
and these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. May the Lord bless now both the preaching and the believing of his word. Our text begins today with a departure. Jesus has been ministering out of Capernaum. It has been his mission base for some time now, but he's since traveling 25 miles southwest, Matthew tells us, to return to his hometown. He's going back to this little beaten down and off the rugged path village that he grew up in, a village named Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up, and it was a very small town indeed. Uh, We believe it was less than 500 people, so we usually have 250 people here on a Sunday morning. Uh, So take two of our churches, and that's about Nazareth. That was the whole town at its biggest that Jesus would have grown up in. This was a small town, and the thing to know about small towns, if you don't know anything about small towns, is that everybody knows something about everybody. This is how small towns work. And the smaller the town, the truer this is. People know who everyone is, and they know who everyone's family is, and they know where everybody lives, and they know where everybody used to live, and they know what everyone does for a living, and they know who got fired, and they know who got married, and they know who got themselves dead. So Jesus is returning to his hometown, and we're told that he's going there where everybody knows his name, and we're told he does the same thing there that we are, in fact, doing here today. It's kind of encouraging as Christ followers. Jesus gathers with the people of God for worship. He goes with his family and his friends to synagogue, and as was the custom in that day, being a visiting teacher, they asked Jesus to preach. They asked him to preach the word. Now, most commentators believe that what we have here is paralleled in Luke chapter 4. So if you want to look at Luke chapter 4 later today or this week, you can study it out there. But this is where Jesus goes to the synagogue at Nazareth, the same synagogue, and he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah about the Spirit of the Lord coming to anoint the Messiah and the Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor. He would proclaim liberty to the captives. He would recover the sight of the blind. He would set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Luke says that Jesus rolled up the scroll and sat down to teach, and he began teaching them that the scripture that he had just read was fulfilled in their midst that day. Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah. 
Now, this was a good illustration, actually, also, of what Bert taught us last week in Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 and 52, where Jesus says that every scribe of the kingdom who is trained uh, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And this is how Jesus taught the scriptures. He'd open up the old, and he would teach from it. He would expound from it. But with it, he would bring new insight. With it, he would bring new revelation, new understanding, new truth. And that's exactly what he did in Luke chapter 4 when he read from the prophet of Isaiah. And Luke 4 may very well parallel Matthew 13, our passage today, but whether it did or didn't, verse 54 tells us he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Now we know Jesus taught with authority, so this does not surprise us, but it is an interesting word that Matthew uses here. Um, The idea it conveys is that they were almost overwhelmed by his teaching. It's a very strong word. We might say today, they were blown away. But very quickly we see this was not the astonishment of admiration. This is not the astonishment of faith. This is the astonishment of unbelief. Is this? This is Jesus? They were amazed, but they were not convinced. Matthew tells us they heard his wisdom, they heard about his mighty works, they couldn't deny the evidence in front of them, but they would not pronounce the verdict it demanded. They would not believe. Instead, verse 57 tells us they took offense at him. This is another strong word Matthew uses. We get the word scandalized from it. They were scandalized by Jesus, and soon he would leave them in their unbelief, and he would never return again. We're not told in the Gospels that, Matthew, or that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth after this visit. Soon he would leave them, and he would leave them in their unbelief, and he would never return again. And so, there's no getting around. This is a very sobering passage. Uh, This is a very startling passage about unbelief. It's 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 a warning passage, and it's a passage that examines us even as it explains unbelief to us. And so, we want to look at three important lessons this passage teaches us about unbelief. Three important lessons. The first is the cause of unbelief. The second is a caution against unbelief, and the third is the cost of unbelief. Nazareth, or we begin with point number one, the cause of unbelief. Nazareth had every reason to believe in Jesus. They had had all the evidence they needed. But their unbelief begins to find expression through the questions they were asking, verses 54 and 55. They said, where did this man get this wisdom and, and these mighty works? Is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this mother, or is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? In his commentary on this passage, R.T. France very helpfully explains what's going on here. The wisdom with which Jesus and the mighty works with which he performed, all these things pointed to a more than human origin, the 
evidence demanded a verdict. Jesus' wisdom and Jesus' works revealed that he was clearly divine, that he was from God. But against all that evidence, Nazareth refused to believe Jesus was the Son of God. Instead, they insisted, this is only the carpenter's kid. They heard his wisdom, they knew his mighty deeds, they could not deny the evidence, but they neither would they accept the verdict. And just like Nazareth, unbelief in our day often exists where it has the least excuse to do so. It often exists where it has been exposed to convincing evidence, to clear explanations, to powerful confirmations, and really to to God's merciful patience. Unbelief often exists where it has the least excuse to. It often exists in churches in families with strong Christians. Unbelief often exists in communities with witnessing neighbors or in places of work where co-workers witness. It often exists in these places because unbelief is not an information problem. Unbelief is a rebellion problem. We like to think that it's an information problem. And so we think we can fix it with more information or with better information. We think, you know, if I could just explain the gospel better, or if I could, if I could just be clearer about Christ's atonement, or if I, if I could just remember the, all those apologetic arguments for why the Bible be, could be trusted, maybe if I memorize them, and if I, if I can get the answers to them, if I can get them excuse me, all the information that they need, then certainly they would believe, right? Certainly they would give their lives to Jesus. We, we think like unbelief is an information problem, but scripture teaches us, and our passage today here illustrates for us, that unbelief is actually a rebellion problem. This is exactly what we see in Nazareth. People refusing what they could know, refusing what they might know, because they don't want to believe it. You see, if a person you're sharing the gospel with tells you they need more proof, they want more evidence, usually that's not really the issue. Have you noticed that? That's not usually the problem. You're witnessing to your uncle, maybe over Thanksgiving, or you're, you're talking to a coworker or to your friend, and they keep saying, well, what about this? Okay, well, what about that? Right? They, they keep bringing up questions. They, they keep saying, prove this or prove that. Prove the Bible is reliable. Prove God really exists. Prove Jesus died for sinners. And every time you do that, what happens? They just want more evidence. They have more questions. <laughs> If their questions were sincere, then when you answer them, it would sincerely lead them towards God, right? But their questions apparently aren't that sincere because you never seem to make progress towards faith in Jesus Christ. And so on and on it might go, but evidence, knowledge, is not the issue. The problem isn't a lack of of knowledge. The problem is a lack of desire. 
That's what we see in Nazareth, and that's what we see in passages like John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I want to show you this, and I have it on the overhead, because I think this will really help you. It, It helps me with our evangelism. So here's the issue. Here's the issues we see. John chapter 3, verse 18. He writes, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. All right, you see that? Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. All right, so see in this passage Nazareth, right? See Nazareth here. They do not believe in Jesus. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. They do not believe in Jesus, and thus they are condemned already. This is Nazareth right here. So, it's also the person you're evangelizing. You have someone who doesn't believe. They keep asking for more evidence. But here's the real problem. Here's the real issue. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. You see, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Jesus Christ, comes into the world. It comes to them. It comes to them through Jesus coming to Nazareth or through you sharing the good news about Jesus. And they see it, but they will not receive it. Because why? What's what's the issue? What's verse 19 says the issue here? What is it? They love darkness rather than the light. That's the issue. That's the problem. The reason they don't believe in God is not a lack of evidence. It is a love of darkness. It is a love of evil. They're not converted because they still love their sin. And that's why they keep talking about Jesus and asking you more questions and demanding more evidence because they, in the deceitfulness of sin, they they think it's an evidence problem. They think it's a knowledge problem. But here's what Jesus did. In Nazareth, verse 58, he refused to do many mighty works there. He would not do it. He would not give them more evidence and more evidence and more evidence. Instead, Jesus confronted them for their sin. Instead, he called them out for not honoring him as a man of God. And friends, this is instructive for us in our evangelism. Pop quiz. Any of you in first service can't answer this. What is the one element of the gospel that is most regularly missing from our evangelism? It's the call to repentance. The call to repentance. We will meet with someone to talk about the Bible, to talk about Jesus, to look at apologetics, to do Bible studies until we are blue in the face. But what is the one thing we are really uncomfortable doing? 
calling out their sin and calling them to repentance. But what is the one thing they need? To hear the truth about their sin and the Savior that can save them. The one element of the gospel that is most regularly missing from our evangelism is the call to repentance. And that is not scriptural evangelism. If Christ and the apostles preached repentance, then we must preach repentance as well. We need to explain that the individual that we are sharing the gospel with, that we are evangelizing to, we must explain to them that they must be ready to surrender to God and not give them false impressions that it is somehow possible to be saved without giving up everything for Jesus. I mean, just consider Christ dealing with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He answered her questions as he faced her squarely with the immorality that dominated her life. Or consider Christ's dealings with the rich young ruler. He answered his questions as he also confronted that man's self-righteousness and covetousness. This is the way God deals with people. He reproves them for their sin in order to bring them to repentance. And this is the way we must deal with them as well. If the cause of unbelief is actually rebellion, if it isn't a lack of evidence, but is in fact a love of evil over God, over Christ, then we must be willing to confront that evil and call it for what it is. We must be able to confront their evil and call them to repentance. Call them to surrender their lives and turn in faith to Jesus Christ for salvation. And if the individual is not ready to surrender like that. If they, if they are not ready to repent, then they are not ready to be saved. And it serves nobody to let them think otherwise. This is so important for us in our evangelism. And parents, can I just say, this is so important in our discipling of our children. It is not just about teaching them the Bible or teaching them about Jesus, but it is about teaching them their sin and how Jesus is the answer to their problem. We call them to repent and believe in Jesus. And the call to repentance is a call to turn away from their sin, to surrender their life, and follow hard after Jesus. So the cause of unbelief is rebellion, and this informs how we do evangelism. We must confront people's sin with love, with honesty, calling them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. This brings us to point number two then this morning, the caution against unbelief. <clears throat> the caution against unbelief. The people of Nazareth simply would not accept that this man, who they knew, Jesus, who grew up among them, who worked alongside them, who ate meals with them, who looked and sounded like them, who had a name just like their name. You know, you know Jesus' name was, was like John in our day or Mark in our day or something. I mean, it was just, it was just a common name. <clears throat> they could not believe that a man just like them could somehow be 
so much more than them. You see, the problem with Nazareth, the problem in Nazareth was they were too familiar with Jesus to be impressed by Jesus. In their eyes, he was only the carpenter's son. He was only Mary's boy. How could he be anything more than that? Their familiarity with Jesus bred contempt of Jesus. They stumbled over Jesus, which caused him to tell them, to say to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, in his own household. Jesus is saying, listen, a prophet is honored, a prophet is listened to. People see him as a man of God, except by those who know him well enough that they have trouble hearing the message through the man. And every parent knows the truth of this proverb, don't we? That a prophet is not without honor except in his own home. And every parent said, Amen. Every parent said, Amen, right? Because, even though you didn't, but some of you are shaking your heads, so I'm just going to assume you are following me here, but I'll explain it to you in case you're not. You have, if you're like me, have been telling your kids things, valuable lessons, important lessons. These are life-shaping lessons. You have been pressing them into their heart, telling them to them over and over and over and over again because you are such a great parent. But have they listened? Well, sometimes, yes. But for my point, no. not right? There's that one or two lesson, that one or two things you're working on. They just don't listen. But then they go to parent youth meeting, and Mr. Tomino gets up, and he says the same thing. And they think, it's amazing. <laughs> I've never heard this before. And you think, only every day. The problem is, they're too familiar with you to always be impressed by you. And the same thing happened to Jesus in Nazareth. Nazareth was incredibly privileged, if you think about it. They were incredibly privileged. J.C. Ryle writes about this in his commentary. He says of Nazareth, never had any place on earth such privileges as Nazareth. For 30 years, the Son of God resided in this town and went to and fro in its streets. For 30 years he walked with God before the eyes of its inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life. But it was all lost upon them. They would not believe the one whose face they knew so well. Never had any place on earth Such privileges as Nazareth had. For 30 years, they knew Jesus. For 30 years, they lived with Jesus. They worshiped with Jesus. But their familiarity with Jesus bred contempt of Jesus. And the same can happen to any one of us. 
That's the caution here against unbelief. The same can happen to any one of us. Have you become so familiar with Jesus that if you could get honest for a minute, you'd have to say, you're not very impressed with Jesus. Compared to other things in your life, compared to your hobbies or your interest or your work or whatever it is, your sports teams or whatever, in comparison, it becomes very obvious. You are not impressed by Jesus. And that's a scary place to be. Maybe you've confessed Christ and you come to church regularly. But again, if you'd be honest for a minute, there's not a whole lot, spiritually speaking, going on inside of you. You say you believe. You insist you believe. You can remember back when you did believe and you've been following Jesus all along, so it seems, and yet, your life is not characterized by New Testament faith. The kind of faith that counts everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The kind of faith that Jesus has been talking about in these parables, the faith that goes and sells all that you have to purchase the pearl of greatest price. Yours is not the kind of faith that clings to Christ. It's your only hope in life and death It's not the kind of faith who, like the demoniac, begged, pleaded that he could go and tell all that Jesus had done for him. Maybe maybe you've seen one of those videos of when a Bible translation is completed in a new new, um, language. Have you seen that before? That when they bring that new Bible uh, to a family or, or to a village or a town and everyone's gathered and, and there's like this big ceremony of them bringing the word of God to them and, and the people just have this joyous, I mean, there's, there's just celebration. They're amazed that they have the, the word of God in their own language. They can't believe it. That Sometimes they cry. Sometimes they whoop for joy. They are just amazed. What a privilege they have to have the word of God in their own language. And it's a privilege you and I all have. But do we take advantage of it regularly? Or have we become so familiar with the Bible that it no longer impresses us? Teenagers, if I can speak to you for a minute, have you considered the privilege of growing up in a Christian home? Have you thought about what a gift that is? What an incredible privilege it is to have parents who are uh, Christians, flawless Christians. You've seen their sin. You, You know they're not perfect, but they're genuine Christians and they love you. And they have 
work to teach you the Bible and to tell you the gospel and they pray for you regularly. They have raised you in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But teenager, have you taken advantage of the incredible privilege of being raised in a Christian home? Or is it all just so familiar to you that it just doesn't impress you? Or perhaps you've been coming here for a while. You've been tending for some time, and yet to date you have not really taken advantage of the privilege of singing Christ-centered songs or listening to Christ-centered sermons or living in a Christ-centered community. This is just the thing you do. It's just you go to church because you're supposed to go to church. But listen, Nazareth stands as a caution to you. Do not become familiar with Christ, so familiar with Him that you become unimpressed with Him because when you do, you begin to rob yourselves of God's highest blessings. And this leads us to the third point this morning, our third and final point, the cost of unbelief. the cost of unbelief. Look with me again at verse 58. This is how our passage closes. And he did not, Jesus, did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now we have to ask ourselves, what exactly does this passage mean? What does it mean that he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief? I'll tell you two things that I think it doesn't mean before I tell you the one thing that I think it does mean, okay? So just to help provide clarity, let me tell you the two things I think it doesn't mean. First, I don't think it means that faith was the supernatural fuel that Jesus needed to kind of fill up his Messiah tank so he could work miracles. You know, like like he was just going around, it was like faith was like, he was absorbing faith. Miracles shooting out now because he's fueled up on everybody's faith around him. There's a movie illustration in there somewhere that I'm missing. I don't think that's what this passage is saying, and and neither do I think it means this, the second thing. I don't think it means that contrary, unbelief, you know, in reverse unbelief, I don't think it means that unbelief works like some kind of supernatural kryptonite on Jesus that depletes him of his power to perform mighty deeds. You know, like, I'm just, I'm so weak because of your unbelief. I I can't. Must escape Nazareth. You know, like, Jesus was not depleted of power because of their unbelief. So what did it mean then that Jesus did not do many works, many mighty works there because of their unbelief? Well, I think it means that this is the consequence, this is the cost of unbelief. It is it cuts us off from God's willingness to bless us. It cuts us off from God's willingness to conduct His power in and through our lives. (coughs) 
Of course, God can't overrule our unbelief, and that's part of the good news of the gospel and the great news of God's mercy and grace. God can overrule our unbelief, and this is why we see the demonized, who are certainly in unbelief, um, yet when Jesus frees them. He's able to work miraculously on them. Also, the unconscious, when they are sick, Jesus can heal them. And also, the dead, Jesus can raise them. And the unconverted, Jesus can convert. So, He can, of course, overrule our unbelief, and we praise the Lord that he does so in his mercy. And yet still, the lesson for us here is in the normal economy of God's kingdom, faith conducts the power of God and unbelief cuts it off. Faith conducts the power of God, unbelief cuts it off. And we need to think about it like this. Faith conducts the power of God, it bends his blessing towards us like copper wire conducts electricity. Have you ever touched a live wire? Anybody touched a live wire here? You know what it's like then when you get that shock. Ooh, ow. Your hair goes This is does in the movies. I've never actually done it. Don't ever want to do it. But you who have touched it know there's power there. There's power in that. But the power doesn't come from the wire. It comes through the wire, right? And that's how faith works. God's power doesn't come from faith, but it comes through faith. It carries, faith carries the power and it carries the blessing of God into our life, just like copper wire carries electricity into our home. Faith carries, it conducts the power and blessing of God, but unbelief cuts the cord. Unbelief suppresses the goodness of God. And this is the great cost of unbelief. It cuts us off from the blessing and the power of God. Jesus did not do many mighty works in Nazareth, that Christ-rejecting place, because he would not. He will not bless it. He will not work there and give them something for their unbelief. And this calls us to watch our own hearts carefully in the matter of unbelief because there is serious and significant consequence, serious and significant cost to not believing. We do not want to be cut off from the blessing of God. Now, obviously, the biggest and, and, and most obvious form of unbelief is the unbelief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, this is the unbelief that Jesus said in John chapter 3, we already read, believing not, they are already condemned. Uh, this is cutting yourself off from an eternal and living relationship with God. This is refusing to be, to enter into his blessed relationship with you. And we must guard our hearts against that, and we must take care of one another. We must watch out for one another. We must exhort each other to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Parents must share the gospel with their children, and one another's we will share the gospel with each other, and we turn around and share the gospel with our communities, with our neighbors, and we pray for the nations, and missionaries going out to them because we share the gospel there, because we do not want people to stay in unbelief. The cost is too great. The cost is hell. The cost is eternal. The cost is painful. We don't want anyone to pay for that. And so we bear the sacrifice for their sake. We share the gospel for their sake. We call them to repentance for their sake. We call them to repentance for their sake. 
This is the first and most obvious way. We must guard against unbelief. We must watch out for the cost of unbelief. But then after we believe, once we become a Christian, we must still be on guard against unbelief. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 for a minute. Hebrews chapter 3. I want to spend the end of our time here together considering three ways, three applications that we can think about uh, living in faith, uh, guarding our hearts against faith. Um, and so this first one comes from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. We're talking about a faith that guards each other. A faith that guards each other. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. This is one of my favorite passages. Uh, I quote it all the time. I probably quote it so many times in this sermon. These sermons, you're, you're getting used to it. But this is such a helpful passage. The author of Hebrews writes, take care, brothers. Hebrews chapter 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brothers. So he's writing to believers. These are brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters. These are believers. But take care, he says. Be on your guard. Watch out with all vigilance. It means there's a military-like verbiage here. He's watch out lest there be in any of you, believers, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We see here a number of important truths that we just want to kind of rattle off, we just want to go through. One is that it is possible for people who confess Jesus Christ, people who we consider brothers and sisters, it's possible for ourselves to have an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. Some of you are here today and you you confess Christ, but you know, examine your own heart, you are you are cold to Christ. You, you just don't have the passion, the heart. You look around and you see so many other people and you just wonder, where do they get all this? Why are they so alive to God? What, what is the issue? What is the problem? Do I need to read my Bible more? Do I need to pray more? I would suggest to you probably the problem is probably somewhere in your life you have let there become an evil, unbelieving heart in your life leading you to fall away from the living God. Somehow you are not living by faith. But instead, you've been taken captive by what he talks about here, the deceitfulness of sin. And you say, okay, well, um, you know, I don't want to think that's me. No one wants to think that's me, right? No, 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 it's got to be another problem, Jesus. It's got to be something else. Like, I I just need to pray once more a day or something, you know. But but let's just say, maybe it is you. What if it is you? How can you possibly know if it's you? Now, in the mercy of God, he may convict you. He may bring something to mind. But here's here's a thought. If you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, if you are deceived by sin, 
then you don't know how you're hardened. You don't know what sin has hardened your heart. You can't see it. You're deceived. You're blind to it. So how do you find out? What do you do? Answer? Look at the person next to you and ask them. Look at the person next to you and ask them. Tell them, you get a free shot. Hit me with your best shot. What do you see? This is what the author of Hebrews exhorts us to do. Exhort one another every day. This is the only way you get at it. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Is today called today? Easiest question I've ever asked you. So let me try again so I can get everybody's participation. Is today called today? So do you need exhorted? What's your plan? We need exhorted every single day to be kept from the hardening deceitfulness of sin. And if we are not, if we do not have people taking aim at the hardening deceitfulness of sin in our lives, if they are not exposing that and encouraging us and exhorting us on, we will be. We will have an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. And I don't know how far away you'll fall. This is why we need each other. This is why we need community groups. This is why community groups can't just be a Bible study. They just can't be hanging out. They can't just be simple fellowship. It's got to be dirty, down in each other's lives, dealing with sin and pointing each other to Jesus. Again and again and again and again. And you're going to say, I brought up my anger last week. I brought up my anger two weeks ago. I brought up my anger three weeks ago. Exactly. Because we humble ourselves and we get the help that we need. Faith that guards each other. That's what we're talking about. That's what we need here. Let me take you to another passage real quick. Let me take you to another passage. Uh, Romans chapter 4. Flip over to Romans chapter 4. I want to show you faith that glorifies God. Faith that glorifies God. Romans chapter 4, there's this talk about Abraham. We're going to look down at verse 20. And it's talking about the time when Abraham was... um, Well, let's look at verse 19. Um, So it's talking about the promise of God uh, to give him a child, to give him a promised child. Verse 19... Uh, speaking of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Here it is, key verse. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave Glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So how do you take faith, how do you take mustard seed size faith and grow it? How do you strengthen your faith? 
How do you get more faith? How do you make it bigger and better and bolder? Well, Abraham shows us faith that glorifies God is faith that takes hold of the promises of God and banks his life on them. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. So the way you grow your faith, the way he grew in faith, but he grew strong in his faith. How? When? At what point? As. There's an activity going on here. So he wasn't just looking at the promises of God. He wasn't just studying them and memorizing them, but he was taking them, and as he took them, he gave glory to God, saying, you can do this. And that grew his faith. That grew his faith. It was the promises of God that he stood on because they were purchased for him by the blood of Jesus Christ. We stand on the promises of God because they are already purchased for us in Jesus Christ. All of God's promises, Scripture says, are yes and amen in Jesus. If you can believe Jesus, if you can trust Jesus, you can trust God for every promise he gives you. Jesus is the sure foundation. And so whatever you're struggling with sin in your life, wherever you go to your spouse or to your community group this week and, they, and you say, take your best shot, hit me with your best shot here, what do I got? And they say, whoa, you're anxious. And you say, pow, that got me. Then you all go in your community group and say, what are the promises of God for anxiety? Let's take them and let's believe them. Let's believe them together. Let's stand on them and bank our lives on them for the glory of God. Okay, just one last passage because this was on my heart to, to get to this on this one. And so I just had this desire that if we want to be not a church of unbelief, but a church of faith, we want to be a people, not of unbelief, but a people of faith, then, then I was just thinking that's got to affect our prayer life. That's got to affect... Now, the way we pray in faith. And so this last one, number three, is faith that expects great things. Faith that expects great things through prayer. And our passage for that is James chapter one. Uh, maybe you can just listen to this one because we're running late. But James chapter one, six and seven. James asks, let him ask in faith. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The faith God calls us to A life lived by faith, a life lived in faith, is a life that expects great things from God. This is the great line of of William Carey, right? Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That's a good motto for your life. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And James chapter 6 is one of those passages that invites us into these great and big and God-sized expectations and askings. We ask 
in faith. What do you ask in faith for? Not things that you can get on your own. Not things that you're not sure about. You ask in faith according to God's will, and you ask one who can give you so much more than you think you can ask for. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven, tossed to and fro by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So here's your homework for this week. I've given you a few, but let me give you one more. Let me encourage you, let me exhort you to make a list of big things God is calling you to pray for. Big things God is calling you to pray for. It could be the conversion of, of, a, of somebody. It could be a transformation of your life. Um, it can be and it should be a new building for this church. Amen? Yes, in faith, people. In faith. No doubting. We don't want that. In faith, the Lord give us that. We want to, what's the, what's the list? What's the list of God-sized things that he would lead you to pray for? in faith. And let's be a praying faith. Because I think it was John Calvin that said, prayer is just faith in action. Prayer is just faith in action. All right, let me close this now with this. Let me, let me end with this little meditation. Uh, we've been talking about unbelief. We've been talking about faith. And I want to point out that there are only two times in the Gospels where we are told that Jesus marveled. Two times, only two times, we're told that Jesus was astonished. By, can you imagine? The one who created everything, the one who holds together the universe, the one who can look down in molecules and look out in space. And something led him to marvel. What could, what could astonish Jesus? Well, one thing we're told, we already looked at this one, Matthew chapter 8, when the Roman centurion, a Gentile, came to Jesus and said to him, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. And in that instance, we're told Jesus was astonished by his faith. Astonished by this faith. What does Jesus marvel over? Faith. And the second time we're told Jesus marvels, then the other time, is actually in Mark's parallel account to our passage today. It's in Mark chapter 6, I think it's verse 6, where we're told Jesus marveled at Nazareth's unbelief. He couldn't believe it. How could someone who knew him so well reject him? Two things Jesus marvels at. And we want to be, we want to be the church where Jesus marvels at our faith, not our unbelief. And we can be that church because God has inspired this passage to call us to it, to invite us into it, to bring us to faith. But we have to admit, we have to concede that 
there is a bit of Nazareth in all of us. We can see ourselves in our passage here today. We are so amazingly privileged. We are so amazingly privileged, and yet we so easily slip into unbelief. And this ought to humble us, and this ought to make us cry out to Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. It all is make us cry out for mercy. And brothers and sisters, as we go to the Lord's Supper all the more, it ought to make us run to Jesus' cross where we find forgiveness for our unbelief. Jesus marveled at faith and unbelief. You want to have something you can marvel over? You want to have something you can marvel at? Marvel at the fact that Christ came to suffer and die for your unbelief in him. Marvel at the fact that as bad as unbelief is, Jesus came to suffer and save you from it. Ultimately, Jesus came to save us from our unbelief. He he is the one who saves sinners in their unbelief from their unbelief. And so marvel at the one who is faithful when we are faithless. (laughs) Marvel at the one who was rejected for our unbelief so that we might be accepted by his faith. Marvel at the one who was cut off from God's blessings so that we might be grafted in to God's blessings. Friends, marvel at the one who has saved us from our unbelief and leads us into faith. For we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Galatians 2.20. This is the good news of the gospel for bent and broken tending to unbelieving people that we are. We all struggle with unbelief, but in Christ, it never has the final word. Jesus' faithfulness does, and that is all our hope. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, this word, your word, your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the spirit and the soul, bone and marrow, dividing even the heart, Lord. Your word discerns our heart and opens us up under the the surgery of your ministry. And so we have been, in many ways, laid open here this morning, and, and you have been taking your careful scalpel. And I believe cutting out our unbelief. Lord, it's a good work you've begun in us, but we pray now that you would bring it to completion. Help us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for you are at work to will and to want in us, Lord. God, we pray that we would be a church who lives by faith, 
a faith that gives you the glory, Lord, a faith that boasts in you, and that, God, you would use us as a church to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world. God, give us not only the words to say, but God, I I pray you would send your spirit with us, that you might convict them of their sin and bring them to salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.